You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 25, Krupp Steel Part 8, Alfred Krupp or Kindermord. Today I'm recording from Monowitz, Poland. This episode is brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In 1941, Gustav Krupp had his first stroke, and he went from senile but more or less in control to completely out of it and unable to run or do anything. From 1941 on, Alfred Krupp was running the empire. Goebbels wrote in his diary, I paid a short visit to Krupp's. I was received by young, by young Bolin, who has taken over the management of the plant in place of his father. Only time will tell whether he is equal to managing this gigantic undertaking, employing nearly 200,000 workers, including branch offices and plants. Now, the historian William Manchester makes a very good point. It is hard to judge someone's actions in the pressure cooker that was all of Europe during World War II. Now, without giving anyone a pass, I will allow that some poor kraut who got drafted and sent off to the slaughter on the Eastern Front still has humanity, even though he might have lost it, and there is a huge amount of moral gray area in places like occupied and Vichy France, to say nothing of other occupied countries. There were even hundreds and hundreds of German businessmen who walked out of World War II with what they called a white vest, or a clean bill of health. That is to say that they went through those years without committing any war crimes, right? But as we're going to see, the Krupps were not what you might call victims of their circumstances. They were willing and witting accomplices who at every turn were downright enthusiastic. Let's get into the details, and as a heads up, we are going to talk about some very dark material today relating to the Krupp concentration camps. And I mean like, it's pretty bad. Let's get into it. So, like we mentioned last episode, the Ukraine was occupied and the Ukrainians worked under slave-like conditions. Four million Ukrainians and other Soviet citizens were sent back west to work in concentration camps. This is more clearly slavery than continuing to work in an occupied territory, right? I don't think anyone would disagree that there's a qualitative difference there. Now, the main work concentration camps that we're talking about are Auschwitz Subcamp 3, which is known as the Monowitz Concentration Camp. Now, this camp was originally built to provide slave labor for I.G. Farben, but they also allowed for Siemens and Krupp to utilize slave labor here as well. It's notable that Eli Weissel and Primo Levi were both inmates at Monowitz. Obviously, being sent to a work camp was superior to being sent to the out-and-out death camps at Auschwitz, right? Your chances of survival were much higher. When the trains would arrive at Auschwitz, Overseers wearing Krupp uniforms would pull skilled and healthy people off the trains to work at Monowitz. Let's talk about this. Alfred Krupp was never ordered to use slave labor, nor did he claim that he was forced to do so by the Nazis. And, apart from maybe Hitler himself, Alfred Krupp really did not have any superiors that he could try to pass the buck off to, saying, I was just following orders. Instead, Alfred Krupp took advantage of the slave trade willingly and enthusiastically. And there there are countless well-documented examples of Alfred going against certain government officials 
in order to use slave labor. For example, Alfred Krupp wanted to build a factory called Werthewerk in Silesia using Auschwitz slave labor. And Speer's ministry was not going to give him permission, so Alfred Krupp went to Speer, who brought it to Hitler for approval. Now, during this time, there were Germans who spoke out about the use of slave labor. For example, there was Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, who we've talked about in episode 7 and episode 13. If you'll recall, Admiral Canaris covertly funded the Viking Bund organization consul and the Nazis, and he may or may not have also been working for the British in one capacity or another. I have read more now, and I am pretty sure that he was doing some level of spying for the British. Either way, at this point in the war, Admiral Canaris was running the Abwehr, which was the military intelligence service. So he was not what you would call a bleeding heart, right? Whatever Canaris was, he was also a dead-eyed killer. But he protested that using prisoners of war for labor, especially under the conditions that they were, you know, especially under these bad conditions, that this violated the Hague Agreements and general military principles. Now, a Nazi might try to slander Admiral Canaris as a British spy and or a traitor. I haven't read my biography of him yet. I do tend to think that he actually was. But the fact still remains that he was the highest-ranking dissenting voice in the government. The Wehrmacht also spoke out, but not to the degree that Canaris did. Now, I don't know if you remember what I said happened to him, but long story short... Admiral Canaris was muscled out, and then he was prosecuted as a spiritual influence on the July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler. That's a, another great thing about Nazi jurisprudence. He could be prosecuted for spiritual influence. Canaris was executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp in 1944. And I'm sure that in all of this, his position against slave labor did not help. Also, speaking broadly, the Junkers, in general, were the most opposed to the slave labor policy, for what that's worth. And as a reminder, the term Junker refers loosely to a class of landed nobility that uh, also had a lot of interests in agriculture at the time. Now, in the Krupp organization, there was Albert Schroeder, who managed one of the larger sites, Krupp's great Germania Werft. In 1941, Schroeder started receiving just hordes of Belgian, Dutch, and French POWs, and he knew that it was illegal to use them for slave labor. So he went to Alfred Krupp directly. Krupp took him on a tour of a different Krupp factory already using POW labor, and he convinced him personally to do the same, which this Schroeder guy did. Alfred Krupp said, the legitimacy of employing foreign workers on war work is not to be discussed. And, of course, he was saying that not just because he didn't want to have a debate on it. He also did not want it to appear in writing more than it already was. Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, who is sometimes held up as a moral mitigating force on the Nazis at this time, he strongly backed the practice of using POWs as slave labor. Maybe if Keitel opposed the policy along with Canaris, the Nazis might have been more restricted. But with Keitel's approval, no one was going to stop them. We're also ignoring the fact that they were arguing over the legality of using POWs for slave labor. When, 
in reality, the people that were ending up in these concentration camps could have never been confused with POWs. There were massive swaths of civilians being designated as POWs here, which is a whole other aspect of it. Anytime there's some huge crime, there's always multiple smaller crimes that go along with it, right? Now, whole books have been written on these discussions. I'm not going to belabor the point, but basically the Wehrmacht did not disapprove of slave labor. That's important. Alfred Krupp visited his factories often, and he saw these slave laborers. He was also reminded of the state of the camps by his medical staff. In a letter that we have written on December 15, 1942, Alfred got a report from his family physician detailing a host of horrors, including the case of a prisoner who died of starvation. Here is a passage from that report. Conditions in all camps for foreign workers were extremely bad. They were greatly overcrowded. The diet was entirely inadequate. Only bad meat, such as horse meat or meat which had been rejected by veterinarians as infected with tuberculosis germs, was passed out in these camps. Clothing, too, was altogether inadequate. Foreigners from the east worked and slept in the same clothing which, in which they had arrived. Nearly all of them had to use their blankets as coats in cold and wet weather. Many had to walk to work barefoot even in winter. Tuberculosis was particularly prevalent. The TB rate was four times the normal rate. This was a result of inferior housing, poor food, and, and an insufficient amount of it, and overwork." Unquote. Alfred Krupp definitely knew what he was doing. Now's a good time to introduce Ewald Oskar Ludwig Lurger. Lurger is spelled like loser, but with umlauts, which is pretty funny. Before World War II broke out, Lurger had become Krupp's most gifted and powerful executive without the Krupp last name. He and Alfred would fight over the company, and their fight would kind of resemble the defector Wilhelm Mulon, who we mentioned in episode 16, the guy who defected during World War I, but this would be an even crazier fight. So Gustav Krupp recruited Luzier back when it looked like Alfred Krupp would be disinherited due to his marriage to a commoner. But when Alfred Krupp developed his killer instinct, or his sociopathy, and divorced his wife, Alfred Krupp was also throwing down the gauntlet and staking his claim on the family business. He and Lurger's battle over the Krupp company would culminate in nothing less than the attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. Lurger joined the firm in 1937, and probably at Gustav's request, Lurger became part of the Kleinkreis, which is to say the small circle, which was a group of seven Ruhr executives who opposed Adolf Hitler. One of Lurger's men visited the United States in 1937, meeting with Cordell Hull, Sumner Wells, Henry Wallace, Henry Morgenthau Jr., and Senator Robert A. Taft, telling each of them that the Nazis were a real threat to U.S. interests. Then, in the summer of 1939, Lurger's man went to London and met with Chamberlain, Churchill, and Lord Halifax, and told them the same thing, that the Nazis were a real threat to British interests. This man told them that Hitler intended to invade Poland by the end of August, which, of course, happened, right? In March of 1942, Lurger's circle became formal, and in November 1942, they made radio contact with Alan Dulles in Switzerland. Again, 
This is something usually left out of biographies and histories of Alan Dulles wartime service. By 1943, they had formed a shadow cabinet that would seize power in the event of a coup. Now, Lurger said he did not have anything to do with the slave labor program, and that use of slaves was what caused his exit from the Krupp company. And there is definitely a record showing that he did oppose slave labor. He wrote to a colleague saying, you must be careful that history someday does not consider you a slave dealer. Now, Berta Krupp hated Luger, and she hated when he would visit, saying, He always upsets us so. Whenever he leaves, your father comes down with a dreadful headache, and we always have to give him something to put him to sleep. That's because Luger was not telling him what he wanted to hear, right? The problem was, Luger definitely used slave labor too. His signatures were all over documents ordering their usage, and it really doesn't matter that he had a conscience about it, right? We will return to this question in the next episode. Anyway, Lurger's network would ultimately make six different attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler. The most well-known of these was the famous Valkyrie plot that took place on July 20th, 1944. After one of their several coup attempts failed, Lurger fled to Switzerland. The cover story was that he was exhausted from overwork and went to convalesce at a spa. In reality, he was meeting with Alan Dulles. We will pick up with Lurger later. Now, some people think that during World War II, the average German never saw the inside of a concentration camp, and therefore they didn't know what was going on. That might be true in some places and for some Germans, but by 1942, Essen had slave labor all over, like in the town itself. We're talking about 16,000 foreign workers, the majority of them being Slavs. Now, there were signs outside Krupp shops in the town saying, Slaven sind Sklaven, which is to say, Slavs are slaves. And this is about as direct as you could possibly get in telling the average person, seeing the sign, exactly what was going on. And matching this, more and more Germans started using the term slave labor regularly, both in their common parlance and in their bureaucratic writings. Intrafirm memoranda alluded to Sklavenarbeiter, slave labor, Sklavenschaft, the slave trade, Sklaverei, slavery, Sklavenmarkt, the slave market, and Sklavenhalter, the slaveholder, which is to say, Alfred Krupp. Intrafirm memoranda calling Alfred Krupp the slaveholder. It just does not get more clear than that, right? And if you'll allow me to quote from William Manchester again, once Adolf Eichmann's trains began rolling, the, the Patwa expanded. Assembly lines, Alfred's subordinates were informed, would be augmented by Juden material, which is to say Jewish livestock. In German, the verb to eat is Essen. The feeding of farm creatures is Fressen, and that was the word used for slaves. In their writing, they were saying that the Jews were farm creatures and that they were eating them. Here we reach the apotheosis of capitalism, which, as Marx said, is a vampire that only lives by sucking living labor, consuming everything. Industrial slave labor is exactly that. Alfred's main slave driver was a man named Fritz von Bülow. We talked about Fritz von Bülow in episode 20. His dad was Friedrich Wilhelm von Bülow, the international arms dealer 
who battled Sir Basil Zaharoff for arms deals, right? His son became a director at Krupp. And this son, Fritz von Bülow, was ultimately the man in charge of all the slave labor that the Krupp concern used. This is the famous von Bülow family, of which Sonny von Bülow is a part. Berlin had appointed Fritz von Bülow as, get this, chief counterintelligence agent in private industry. Now, in essence, every foreign worker wore the same uniform, but with markers denoting their nationality. Soviets were marked with the white initials SR for Soviet Russia. Poles received a big P letter. Others received OST, meaning they were from Eastern Europe. These workers were working all over Essen, so no one could argue that they did not know what was going on. Let's talk economics here. The slave labor was administered by the SS, and the going rate was three marks a day per slave. The three marks theoretically was supposed to provide for the cost of housing and feeding them. But the SS and the companies usually stole that money and provided almost no food, which accounted for the insanely high mortality rates. A lot of people have seen the barracks of concentration camps, but in Essen there was no uniformity like all of those barracks. Some of these inmates slept in tents, others were sleeping in ruins or huts, there were some that slept in dog kennels, and some simply had to sleep on the ground. It's believed that the Krupp company used slave labor in over 100 factories all over Europe, not just in Essen or Monowitz subcamp at Auschwitz. It's not clear how many slaves had the honor of working for Krupp, but it's been estimated at around 100,000, of which not very many survived. Every year, the minimum working age in these slave labor shops and mines dropped. At first, the minimum working age was 17 then it dropped to 14, then to 12. By 1944, children as young as six years old were being assigned to work at these Krupp slave labor shops and mines. There are memorandum backing up all of these charges, by the way. Let's get very dark, and I don't say that out of glee. It's important to remember history, even when it's painful, and especially when we have not learned our lessons. So, the SS and the Krupps operated a concentration camp called Buschmannshof, which was a concentration camp for babies, ranging from newborns to two years old. Now, how did this come about? In Essen, certain shipments of workers included families shipped together, and when this happened, in many cases, they kept the families housed together. When that happened, the wives would conceive, and so the babies became wards of the Krupp family. By 1943, Alfred Krupp's solution was to set up Buschmannshof, a building set up to have a couple of caretakers to take care of the children while the mothers kept working. Buschmannshof was a town away from where the, most of the workers were working, and even farther for others. Now, the initial number of infants when they set this up was 120. First, they allowed the mothers to visit their children on Sundays, although most of the time, most of them were not able to visit. The caretaker said that most Sundays, only about 15 or so women could find a way to get there and back. As far as is known, Alfred Krupp never visited 
Bushmanshoff, but then again, almost every aspect of Bushmanshoff is shrouded in mystery. At Nuremberg, during the trials, the caretaker could not remember precise numbers of infants, nor the infant mortality rate, nor their causes of death. Another Krupp employee who testified at Nuremberg described seeing babies fed a sort of cruel, seeing many of them with swollen heads, and none of them had arms or legs thicker than my thumb. Another guard said that she saw 50 or 60 children die every day, and as many were born every day because there was a constant influx of eastern female workers with children. This same talkative guard was asked how the children died, and she said that the children were cremated inside the camp. The caretaker, when cross-examined about this fact, shouted, No child was cremated. Another caretaker, when confronted, said, They were always put in nice coffins and got a proper funeral. In reality, both witnesses were probably right, as there were definitely mass graves of babies, but that some were also probably cremated, and some probably received coffins. The number of graves do not correspond with the stated mortality rates at Bushmanshoff, so there are definitely also missing babies. Although the figures are incomplete, it's believed that 74% of the original infant population died, with 90% of those deaths coming about the last seven months at Bushmanshoff. Most Krupp records show deaths caused by general weakness, with some employees on the record saying, I admit that this is due to a measure of maladministration. But what about the 25% that didn't die at Bushmanshoff? Those babies, towards the end of the war, were transferred to Thuringia, and their fates are unknown. Since all of the babies were in poor health, it is likely that they all died, barring any occult child sacrifices to Moloch, of which we have no proof. Most historians believe that the children of Bushmanshoff died and were buried in a mass grave somewhere that will never be found, which is what I assume happened as well. There is a possibility that some may have survived, but there are no records and it is unlikely. Elsewhere, the Reich's policy in the East was to exterminate babies of Polish and Russian women working for German industry by injecting poison into their veins. Realistically, that's what probably happened to these children, bringing Bushmanshoff's probable infant mortality rate from 74 to probably 100%. Now, when the top echelon of Nazi war criminals were convicted, only Albert Speer and Hans Frank exhibited any kind of remorse at all. As Hans Frank was led to the gallows at Nuremberg, he said, A thousand years will pass and Germany's guilt will not be expunged. Well, not if the US of A has anything to say about it. To wrap things up, let's walk ourselves back from the edge. Let's cough up that black pill. Let's go back. Enough killing. Let's go back to chilling. So, going back in time, Gustav Krupp was no longer running the company, nor could he, and Alfred Krupp was in charge. But under German law, it was illegal to pass the entire inheritance, like, say, 
all Krupp company stock to just one child. It was illegal to disinherit all the other children. But that is what the Krupp family wanted and needed to do. Diluting the holdings across eight different children would cause chaos. And that was not in the wishes of the family, right? This was a very major problem for the family. So in 1942, Alfred Krupp went personally to visit Hitler's underground headquarters to try to find a resolution. Hitler came up with a document signed into federal law called the Lex Krupp, which was a special law just for the Krupp family. And the law disinherited Alfred's siblings, allowing the entire company to go to Alfred alone. Now when they passed the Lex Krupp, they had a special ceremony. On November 15th, top generals, admirals, Gestapo, and SS men all went to Via Wegel, along with the Krupps and their family lawyers. They all sat in the big hall. Now the two people crucial for this ceremony were Berta Krupp, the Cannon Queen, and Alfred Krupp, the Cannon Prince, soon to be the new Cannon King. Gustav Krupp, now incontinent, was positioned near a bathroom with two servants to assist him should nature require. Berta Krupp was 57 years old, and she was still active even though Gustav Krupp was incapacitated. As part of the ceremony, Berta declared, I renounce the ownership of the family undertaking in favor of my son, Alfred, who thus, in accordance with the statute drawn up on the basis of the Fuhrer's decree, becomes the owner of the family undertaking. In accordance with the Fuhrer's decree, my son will be known by the name of Alfred Krupp von Bullen und Halbach from the time that he becomes the owner. Then, Alfred Krupp rose and said, I am in agreement with the above declaration by my mother. He said quietly, and I will take over the ownership of the family undertaking. With as much pomp and gravitas as they could muster, the Canon King now looked directly into the eyes of each and every person in attendance. But, while all of these lines were being read, Gustav Krupp had soiled himself, and was being hoisted to the bathroom nearby by his servants. And during the ceremony, everyone could hear the sound of the toilet flushing. Somehow, with the Germans, it always comes back to shit. Now the Lex Krupp is a bizarre piece of legislation. For one thing, it's almost singular in that it's a law made for a single family. It only applies to them. For another thing, as a legal precedent, it's almost unprecedented, because it literally says that this one family is allowed to break the law, but no one else can, in disinheriting all of Alfred's siblings. Finally, it's bizarre, because the Lex Krupp stayed on the books when West Germany became a country. Ironically, the Lex Krupp's wording made it even easier to pin the Krupp company's many sins on directly onto Alfred Krupp. Additionally, Alfred made a proclamation to Krupp executives in a memo which read, The owner of the family enterprise alone carries responsibility for and is the head of the entire firm. All matters of importance must be submitted to me as well as to members of the directorate for a decision. And that's as good a place as any to stop with Alfred's statement of responsibility for these crimes. Now, it's hard for me to draw up glib conclusions or morals or life lessons from an episode like today, 
Anyone who finds it easy to do that with the Holocaust is probably not taking it seriously. Still, I suppose I should try. One thing that strikes me, it can be easy to look at the outright exterminations via the Einsatzgruppen and the gas chambers and view that as the final conclusion of the logic of extermination. I think that examining Monowitz is still crucial to understanding the Holocaust. Working people to death is still extermination. The idea of modern-day corporations using slave labor is something that we need to pay attention to because it has not gone away. Prison labor and slavery in the supply chain in third-world countries doesn't quite rival what the Nazis were doing. But the Nazis using slave labor in concentration camps was a sin more on par with chattel slavery in the United States or the genocides throughout history. I don't think that we've seen the end of modern-day corporations using mass slave labor either, although I would love to be wrong about that. And there's no disputing that Alfred Krupp knew what he was doing, stealing all those factories and employing slave labor. If anything, he probably knew more than anyone else the scope and scale of the war crimes he was committing. There are probably even worse sins that were covered up, if you can believe it, and we will talk about that next episode. There is a long paper trail of evidence showing that he knew and decided to use slave labor and knew the conditions that these inmates were working under. Now, apart from that, I was blown away when I learned about Lurger and his connection to the anti-Hitler Nazi networks and to Alan Dulles. For one thing, you can see how the Krupps kept their fingers in every pie, including the anti-Hitler movement. But distancing themselves enough with enough deniability to avoid getting taken down. And you don't see that many people talking about Alan Dulles involved in the plot to kill Hitler, nor Alan Dulles' wartime connections to these plotting industrialists. Pretty curious, huh? Then we saw the sickness and depravity of the Slavs are slaves signs, and the creeping usage of the term slave labor, and how nobody in Essen and in the Krupp company could claim that they did not know what was going on. Then we talked about the black pill that is Bushmanshof, the infant concentration camp, which in its own way is as bleak as anything at Auschwitz or Babiyar. I don't know if I have the ability to communicate in words how I feel about Bushmanshof, just that I would emphasize that the Krupps were involved in crimes as heinous as any the Third Reich carried out. Finally, we got to see the Lex Krupp, which was just one more example of the Nazis' habit of making exception after exception until the rule of law became meaningless. Not that I cry for the sanctity of German inheritance law necessarily, but you know what I'm getting at. It's the same underlying impulse that they had to make everything easy by making weird exceptions that are almost immediately used by the powerful to dominate the weak. Yes, there are similar behaviors in other societies, but the point, I guess, is that the Nazis just made it easier for the powerful to dominate, which sounds attractive maybe when you're like a pathetic 13-year-old with power fantasies, but in reality, domination just ends up looking like smothering infants in a truck somewhere so that the Allied invasion doesn't find out your crimes. That's what Nazi domination actually is. And on that happy note, I must... Cite my sources. I used The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel, as well as some Nuremberg documents that I pulled up. 
Thank you for listening, dear listener. If you like this content, check out my Patreon, where I do mostly weekly content. A lot of one-off episodes. It's good stuff. Check it out. Now I need to be on my way. I'm headed to the Luftschutzbunker. See you next week, and God bless.